Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. The Saga of Ref the Sly Part 1 Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we're going to be going through our first section of the Saga of Ref the Sly. Uh, these are like 1 through 5, if y'all are reading along at home. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk to you about a few things. First of which is, if you're here in the Northern Hemisphere then you know that things are getting hot, hot, hot. Now, while a lot of people, including my wife, are suffering greatly from this weather and do not like it whatsoever, somewhere in the past several years, I became a lizard? Yeah, I think lizard's the right term for it. I like heat. It was it was in the upper 90s today, and I was looking around being like, you know, it's pretty nice. What is it, like upper, upper 70s, low 80s? And my wife looked at me aghast, upper 90s. So... Evidently, I don't experience heat the same way the rest of y'all do, but unless you're a lizard, I imagine that it's quite warm, which means a piece of unsolicited advice. No matter what wargaming you participate in, you're going to be losing uh, water. You're going to need to rehydrate in order to stay at your peak performance. This is especially true for physical wargaming, where heat stroke is far more of a threat, but even with intellectual wargaming, the heat and the aridness of the air, in, in, I guess if you live in the desert like I do, uh, those of you along the coast deal with humidity, a whole different sort of beast. But regardless, it's good to have water. So regardless of what we do and what our activity is, let's make sure to all be drinking water so that uh, we can, again, be able to perform at our, our top level. Speaking of physical wargaming, our local realm here opened up this last week. And I was so thrilled. I knew I was missing the community and the ability to just be around people who have a similar interest as I do and partake of the same activity, especially one that's so based on consensual violence. And I was just tickled. I was just tickled. And I, I didn't even fight. I was doing mostly administrative things throughout the course of the, of the practice. But it was just good to see people. It was good to hear the whack of the foam on, on body hear people hollering at one another and you know it's it's jovial competition but still like competitive edge it was wonderful y'all so i hope you all are having similar experiences wherever you're at that things are coming back together that people are coming back together and these communities that we love and rely on so much are finally there to enrich us once more and for us to be able to enrich as well so uh that's excellent of course been playing uh, some kill team with my buddy TF. We didn't have one this last weekend because, again, we did the realm reopen. And then afterwards, he and a, uh, a unit mate came over and we played some uh, <laughs> played some Mario Party with my wife. So, 
Nothing serious went on this last week. It was just good to see TF and Frith. Speaking of TF, he's going to be on the show a little bit later. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about this book. Back when we decided to do a focus on something more mythologically oriented, I did have some reservations because I was thinking to myself, how are we going to be able to get the same tactical strategic information from a piece that was supposed to be entertainment as we would from another text on military science. But it was, it seemed like a good idea. So we went along with it and now I'm sitting here and I will warn you, it is a struggle to extract good tactics from a book like this. Most of it's just good advice for life. So a lot of this, this episode and the next two, cause this is going to be a short season. We've only got this episode and then two more. And then the, the book is over and we'll be transitioning over to Clausewitz, which is real military science, the stuff we want to dig our teeth into. But this is going to be a little break from that. And I, I understand that there's an irony to studying about Iceland when it's the middle of a very warm summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. But, you know, I think it's like eating ice cream in the middle of summer. It just helps that little bit of chill helps take the edge off. So yeah, bear with me as we attempt to find good information that is uh, tactically applicable from this book. Lastly, I wanted to make a comment, speaking of, of difficulties, about the language in which this was written. Icelandic is a notoriously difficult language to learn and or speak without having total immersion. And part of the reason for this is because it's been largely unchanged since the 9th century, which would have been about the time that our characters within these sagas were doing their thing. So their language has not changed since that time. You go back and look at English, for instance, for those of you who are listening to this in English, I don't know why you wouldn't be listening to this in English. Anyways, you go back to English from about that time, the 9th century, and uh, most English speakers could not understand it. Or it would take them a while to muddle through something because English has changed so much in the past thousand years. But Icelandic has remained largely the same, except for inclusion. They actually come up with new words within their language for new stuff. Telephone. Computer. Various things that have come about in the last hundred, hundred and fifty years. The Icelanders have their very own words for them. Which makes, again, it difficult to transition from English. Uh, languages like French and Spanish... When something new is invented in, like an English-speaking language, like a computer, it basically sounds the same. Like most other languages will just say computer, albeit with, you know, within their, their dialect or within their, their phonetic tool set. But the Icelanders do their own thing. So it's a difficult language. You guys have heard me muddle through other languages before and uh, and kind of wreck them. For those of you who are in the Nordic countries, I'm about to do the same. I know we have listeners in Sweden. I don't know about Iceland, but I'm sorry, Swedish people, whose language is somewhat familiar to Icelanders. I am going to butcher this. But with that in mind, let's have some fun. And let's start section one, which regards sloth and the makings of greatness. As we mentioned last episode, a lot of Wrath the Sly takes place outside of Iceland, and that makes it rather unique as the Icelandic sagas are concerned, because, as the name implies, they often have to do specifically with Iceland. However, this first section 
is, in fact, in Iceland. And the setting is up in, like, the northwestern area. If you're looking at a map, it's around the area called Breidafjord. Again, those of you who are Nordic speakers, I, I know I'm probably stressing these wrong, but this is the last time I'm going to apologize. We're just going to get right into it. So the players for these this first section are, this is the base. This is the base from which the rest of the story is going to be told. So we have a lot of our main players, of course, being introduced within these first five verses, stanzas. I'm not quite sure what to call them, but these first five things of this particular saga. So our players here are Stein, who is a farmer at Kvenebreka in Breidafjord, Thorgerd, who is Stein's wife, and he is she is also the sister of Guest of Bardestrond. Thorbjorn is a rich, overbearing guy who's a great fighter and also known as a troublemaker. And in this particular case, troublemaker doesn't mean, you know, getting a little bit too tipsy and, you know, make, uh, giving a raucous to the town or, or even like skirt chasing or something like that. Troublemaker here is killing without compensation. This was a part of the laws in that area where if you killed, it was kind of expected, assumed, and part of the legal system that you would pay compensation to the family if, of course, it was an unlawful killing. He didn't. And so he was constantly being like moved and chased out of districts, basically, because he was a bad neighbor and his temper was short and he enjoyed killing people and then not paying for it afterwards. His wife, Ranvig, is, and this is a quote from the book, stupid, domineering, and is often thought to drive her husband, Thorbjorn, into the outrages, kind of kind of pushes him into it. When reading through the text, you know, I, I can definitely see Ranvig as like a, a Karen character in order to make like a, a pop reference. You know, she wants to speak to the manager. And she's not exactly bright, but she really thinks that her opinions are the correct ones. So that's Ranvig right there. Then we have Ref the star of our show. He's big for his age and good looking, and he, but he's hard to manage. And he's known as a coal biter. Remember last episode, we talked about a coal biter being someone who is unmotivated, lazy, kind of a good for nothing. And he's thought of as a fool because nobody's ever seen him do anything. Nobody thinks he's really capable of anything at this point. And then we have Barty the short, who is, I can only assume, short, or perhaps the tallest person in the village. I knew a guy in my basic training outfit. His last name was Smalls, but he was big enough to be a linebacker. And so it was kind of ironic. It wasn't a nickname in that particular case, but anyways, he's known as being swift, sharp-eyed, and extremely observant. Kind of got a name for himself. Guest is our next character. As we talked about before, he's the brother of Thorgerd, and it is heavily implied that he is kind of a master craftsman. He's got access to a lot of different tools and a lot of different trades. And then finally, we have Gellir, who is a traveler. He's boisterous, given over to good times. He comes from money. He's very competitive and very into sports. Kyle. So we've got our Karen and our Kyle for the story, Ranvig and uh, Gellir. So let's see what happens. We're going to go through this, and I'm going to kind of analyze it as we go along. Now, some of these analysis, I know, are a little far-reaching, Kind of goes beyond the theme of the story and, and waxes into other ideas. I'm doing this because if I were to just go through and just pull out the tactical information, this would be a real short episode. So I want to make sure you all get your money's worth. So I'm going to be uh, 
trying <laughs> to make some, some, uh, some keen observations here. And if you like them, or if you feel like I missed something, please uh, give me a, a shout out, drop me a line, either at our email address or, or somewhere on Facebook or something. And we can kind of talk about what your analysis would have been here. Let's have some fun. So it starts off with, you know, Stein, Stein and Thorgerd have this farm and they have this son, Ref, and they're living a pretty good life. Being a farmer is a pretty good time in these in these uh, in this era of history, in particular this part of the world. It's it's pretty peaceful for the most part because your jarl kind of looks out for you, and as long as you have good neighbors, everything goes pretty well. However, next to Stein and Thorgerd, Thorbjorn moves in. Now remember, Thorbjorn is this dude who likes killing, and he's brought with him a reputation. Everybody knows who this guy is. So he moves in and he immediately begins grazing his herd on Stein's land, despite the fact that the two segments of land are divided by a clear river barrier. Now this shows a lack of respect on Thorbjorn's part. He obviously had great confidence in his martial prowess because he didn't mind doing things like this. If he was a weaker person, or if he was not as given to fighting, he probably wouldn't be so bold. But he does this because he thinks he can. Now, there's a lot of folks like this. I'm sure you've met people in your wargaming circles who just think they're the biggest deal in the world. And they, they decide that they're going to kind of slop on everybody else's good time because they're good. I mean, they may, this, is, this is not something that uh, perhaps is unearned. Even when I was in band, there were people who, you know, they, they were the best trumpet player in the section. They were awfully full of themselves, but you couldn't deny that they were the best. And so he does this partially because he thinks he can. We all know folks like that. Stein goes over and politely asks him to stop, kind of outlines the situation and very, very cordially approaches him and asks, asks that he ceases this activity. Stein, uh, Thorborion is actually surprised at this because most people respond to his rudeness with an escalation of rudeness. And that's kind of what ticks him off leading to the killings. And so you know, he's, he's kind of surprised at the courtesy and he's like, yeah, uh, you know, you spoke to me very nicely. Everything seems real reasonable. I can agree to these terms. He also adds that uh, if more people had spoken to him like this, perhaps he wouldn't have done so much killing. Now, he's kind of responsible for his own actions. You know, just because somebody spoke disrespectfully to him doesn't mean that he had the right to strike them down. But in this particular case, Stein lucks out because he gets on Thorbjorn's good side. Diplomacy. That is something that I absolutely take from this section. Diplomacy often wins the day. Meeting somebody's rudeness with rudeness escalates the situation. Meeting somebody's aggression with aggression escalates the situation. What Stein does here is he diffuses the situation. Thorbjorn is looking for a fight. He knows somebody's going to come after him. He's not stupid. He knows that he's grazing on somebody else's land. But Stein goes over and just, you know, chills the situation out. So diplomacy in this case won far more than fighting him because, again, Thorbjorn's reputation, he probably would have killed Stein. So Stein did the right thing here, and he, he engaged in this difficult diplomacy with a difficult man, and for the rest of his life, everything went pretty well. However, everybody dies, and Stein died. But before he did, he advised his wife, Thorgerd, to move move over to, in with her brother Guest, because he doesn't think that Thorbjorn will continue behaving after he's gone. Again, there's kind of a gentleman's agreement here. And, sure enough, he proves outright. Now, Thorgerd doesn't move, though. 
At first, she doesn't want to because of sentimentality. The farm that she has shared with her husband means something to her. The land that they tilled together and worked into something useful means something to her. And I'm sure there's an element of pride here, too. Pride in one's work and one's accomplishment and not just wanting to walk away from it because some jerk moves in next door. But here he comes, grazing on her land and destroying the crops. You know, she's, she's having issues making ends meet because of the destruction being wrought, and he refuses to stop. She approaches him, but he doesn't listen to her. We all know dudes like this, too, who when a, when a man approaches them and is cordial with them, uses diplomacy, they'll listen. But in the case of a woman approaching them, they don't listen. And so that makes things a lot more difficult here. And obviously Thorbjorn is, is not a good guy for how he handles this. So after having to deal with this for a while and, and not making any money, and again, kind of on the verge of starvation, she tries to sell the land, but nobody wants to buy it. Again, they know who Thorbjorn is. Nobody wants to live next to that guy. And so she does the next best thing. She needs help. She knows she can't handle the situation on her own. So she hires Barty the Short, remember him, the tall guy, to watch the river line. Now, she doesn't bring him into a blind. She tells him, hey, we're conflicting with Thorbjorn. He's got this reputation, uh, kind of gives him the history. And he's like, no, I, this, is, this seems like worthy work. I'll do it. I'll do it. And this definitely shows that there's nothing wrong with reaching out for help. If you're in a difficult situation, dealing with a difficult person, or if we're dealing with you know, difficult times, there's no problem in reaching out and asking somebody else to kind of intervene, even when it comes to skill. You know, there's absolutely been times where I've been having a shot rock me in physical wargaming. Just couldn't, couldn't get a block on it or couldn't figure out how to stance against it. And so instead of just beating my head against a wall, I asked somebody. You know, look, somebody for either who uses the shot a lot or who's really good at defending against it and say, hey, can you teach me? Can you show me a little bit? And so that's reaching out for help. That's recognizing that we're not capable or that it wouldn't be worth it to do it on our own. On our own. And so we look to other people for help. Same thing in, in intellectual wargaming. You know, let's say I'm going up against an army. I'm going up against Tau. And I just get rocked every single time. Tau is just my sticking point. And perhaps I want to be prideful. Perhaps I want to say, you know what? I'll figure it out on my own. I don't need anybody else's help. It was just a fluke. It was, you know, they, they did such and such or so and so. I didn't understand the rules, all these things. Or I could reach out to somebody who either plays Tau or is really good against Tau and say, hey, can you help me? So as Thorgird proves here, there's nothing wrong with reaching out for help. And Thorgird's herd starts to do better. Her crops start to do better. She starts to turn a profit. Everybody's eating well. But at the same time, of course, Thorbjorn and Ranvig's herd starts to do a little bit worse. The milk isn't quite as bountiful because they're not getting the, the massive amount of grazing area, this really, these really nice pastures that are on the other side of the river there. And Ranvig convinces Thorbjorn to intervene for this better pasture. Again, saying, you know, we've been grazing there for a while. They have no right to kick us off. We're just going to do what we want to do. And she kind of pushes him. He might not have had an issue with it, but she, she pushes him into it. And so the, he walks over and sees that Barty's watching the river line, confronts him and says, hey, you got to let my... My, my cows cross. You're sitting here aggressing them from across the river. And Barty's like, I don't cross the river. I sit right here and maintain the river line. 
well, then you're, you're beating my animals to keep them from coming. No, I just steer them away. And so Thorbjorn gets more and more and more angry and then kills him. Just strikes him dead. That's one of the things that I actually kind of like about the sagas is a lot of other stories, especially movies, portray fights as being these long drawn out sequences of, you know, these blows going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you've got this block, strike, block, strike. And it's all very dramatic. But the majority of fights are over within 20 seconds, I'd say, if not 10. Mostly it comes down to fast movements and who can read their opponent the best and who can strike accordingly, take advantage of those opportunities. And so, uh, again, if you're reading through this, it's, it's really just that simple. Strikes him dead. Boom. He's dead. And he tries to hide the body, but at the same time, Ranvig releases the herd and they trample through Thorgird's crops. And Thorgird, man, she's not doing well. Her husband passed away. She's been having to fight tooth and nail to keep her land in any sort of, of profitability or, or worth. And then finally, finally, when she thinks she found a solution, that solution gets killed. And the problem is worse than it was before. She goes to her son. And we haven't talked about Ref so much in the story because, again, he's, he's not really a character up to this point. He's just kind of sitting there, loafing around, not doing much, just kind of underfoot. And she, she loses it. She just starts berating him, just starts digging into him, you know, because, you know, he's lazy and he's useless. All this stuff is going on. And he's just sitting there doing nothing. And Ref responds, well, I don't have to take that sitting down. And he gets up, he grabs a weapon and he walks out the door. And he keeps walking until he gets onto Thorbjorn's property. Now, this is a big man. Remember that he's, he's big for his age and he's just walking on to Thorbjorn's property armed but they don't take him seriously. <laughs> They're like, oh, this guy, ref the lazy, you know. Oh, he got off the couch. I'm so scared. You know, just mocking him. He's armed, but they don't care. Like I said, they, he's not a threat. And so he walks. He walks right up to the house. And he goes in and confronts Thorbjorn. Thorbjorn is in the bed. Naked. And he just starts talking to him, you know, saying, hey, you know, you killed our man, Barty. For, for your pasture, are you going to give us compensation? Basically is the, the, the course of the conversation. And as they're having this conversation, he's allowing Thorbjorn to get dressed. Again, he, stand, he could have walked in and just stabbed him, just stabbed him right in the bed. But he doesn't. They're sitting there having a conversation. And this, I think, is one of the things that kind of defines Ref. He's, he's a trickster figure, but he also has a sense of what seems like honor. To me, he wants a good fight. To me, he wants it to be legal, like legally defensible. Again, going in and assassinating a dude in his sleep, that's not going to go over in one of, the, one of the things, the courts. And so he allows him to get dressed. It's also a better fight, by the way. And Thorbjorn refuses to pay. And also refuses to draw a weapon. And just instead chooses to mock him. So throughout this whole section, we see... Everybody underestimating Ref. They let him into camp, not thinking that he's going to accomplish anything whatsoever. You know, they, they, he goes into Thorbjorn's house and is sitting there, armed, in Thorbjorn's bedroom. And Thorbjorn gets up and is also armed, but also chooses to mock instead. And as we've said for the past several seasons, for the entire course of this show, underestimating your enemy 
is the road to ruin. And that is, that is about to be demonstrated here. I, I have absolutely seen this in action. At some point, I wanted to do a assassin episode. Uh, I had gone around and collected information from all the uh, different people who have won assassins tournaments and Belagarth events. And I want to talk about that at some point. But one of the things that comes to mind here is I'm thinking about Juicer. And if you all have never met Juicer, and again, I'm assuming that those of you that live in Great Britain and play Warhammer 40k have never met Juicer. But those of you who have know that he's a pretty friendly dude. And he can walk into just about any camp and make himself at home. And so he did. There was this one uh, Assassin's Tournament he was telling me about where he would just walk into a camp. And everybody, of course, would stiffen up because they know Assassins are about. And a few of them, especially toward the end of the week, knew that he was an Assassin. But he'd come in and he'd get all buddy-buddy and ask people about their day and ask people about their event and what was going on in life and love. And they would get every, he would get everybody into a sense of ease. And they would begin to forget they would underestimate. And then he'd gack them. Yeah. Yeah, that's my kind of tactic right there. And that's what happens here. They underestimate him. Everybody does. And Ruff kills him. Strikes him dead. Again, much like the other section. There's not this long, drawn-out fight and exchange of blades. Just boom. Strikes him down. And then he hides. Because, again, there's a lot of dudes outside. And now they're mad. Because their master is dead. As we had said before... Farmer is actually, it's not a term of like, you know, a small family tilling a, a patch of land. Farmer implies a lot of times a person who is in charge of many people on many acres. And so those people come looking, but Ref hides. He hides until night. And then he heads on home where he tells his mother what has occurred. And the interesting thing here is that he speaks in verse. As we spoke before, as we talked about before, the prose the verse of Iceland was actually quite sophisticated, especially for the time. And so here we have Ref, who has done and accomplished nothing so far over the course of these stories, not just proving himself an able fighter, but also proving himself extremely intelligent by speaking in this verse. So again, I, I, I see that this is also a matter of seeing potential. There are a lot of folks that, you know, you, that aren't necessarily winners at the very forefront, that if you invest time, if we invest uh, effort into their training and into their development, that they can become real assets to us. Uh, again, the guy that we're about to hear from, TF, he started a, a decent while after I did, but he was very, he became a very good asset. He listened to what people had to tell him. He, he learned from absolutely everything he saw, and he went from being a noob who was pretty darn athletic, so he had a nice edge because of that, to being somebody who was dangerous. He had this, this potential, and it grew. We're going to talk about him a little bit later, too. I see this all the time with, my, uh, with the high school students that I work with. They'll come in, especially as freshmen, and uh, they don't know how to fight. A lot of them are extremely unsure of themselves, and it can be hard sometimes to see the potential but you got to look for it because a lot of these kids, when they stick through it, when they have reached that year four and they have been studying with their peers and with me and hopefully coming to practices with the other adults so they can really get a feel for how the field operates, they can become quite lethal. I'm always sad. I'm always sad to see my fourth years disappear because they have become a challenge at that point. 
as good as they come in. And you got to recognize potential and feed into it. That's, that's one of the best things we can do because like Ref demonstrates here, people are sponges. And I'm sure growing up in a warrior culture, he heard all sorts of stories about the best way to fight. And it seems like he paid attention. May not have looked like he was paying attention, but he was. And he heard all sorts of people speak in all sorts of different type of, of level of intellectual language. And he may not have spoken himself, but he paid attention. So this is how we can unlock our own potential as well, by paying attention. However, this situation is obviously pretty tenuous. Thorgird doesn't have a whole lot of people under her command, and, and Thorbjorn's people are pretty damn mad at this point. And so she sends him away, after, until after the killing can be settled, until after the courts can convene and, and make sure that everything was done by the book, and that he's good to return home. Not just through legal matters, but also <laughs> making sure that he's not going to get jumped by Thorbjorn's uh, former men. And so Ref goes to stay with Guest, his uncle. And he has no initial skills at this point. Remember, he's just been kind of sitting around, and while you might be able to learn a little bit about fighting and use that natural, you know, big for his age to his advantage, and how you can learn verse from listening, crafting is pretty hands-on. You need to learn it by doing it. And so he has no initial skills, but, but Guest is like, hey, we're going to give you a trade. We're going to make sure that you can make it in the wider world. We're going to... Uh, kind of expose you to these different trades and see what sticks. So Ref tries a bunch of different things, but he really shows a talent for woodworking. And so Guest eventually says, hey, how about you build a boat? And Ref agrees, if only he's going to be given the supplies for it, and he gives a list of all of his supplies, and privacy. He wants to be able to work on his own. And so he does. Months go by. And Guest gets curious. And so... He has uh, uh, somebody else, and he goes and looks as well. Kind of go check it out. And the boat, while unfinished at this point, is near perfection. Ref has dedicated himself to making sure that this boat is coming out as, as, as well as it can. And Guest is really impressed. Again, he's seen a lot, but this is, this is it, in the book it says that it's one of the most massive boats in Iceland. And this is Ref's first time building something of this size. Once again, I'm reminded of TF who we're going to talk to in part two of this show. And he is an amazing crafter. He came into the, to the sport obviously not knowing any of this. He didn't know how to sew. He didn't know how to foam smith. He didn't know how to leather work, all these things. Or if he did know them, they were to a far lesser degree. But he dedicated himself. He really applied himself to learning these things and, and playing to his strengths. And now he's one of the best crafters that I know, Period. So through this, we can see that developing some sort of skill like this is also really important. It's not necessarily enough to be a good war gamer. Just because we can fight or just because we're very good at, at manipulating our field does not mean that we're going to be excellent at everything we do. We have to practice those things too. Learning how to sew, learning how to foam smith, learning how to paint and assemble our own models, come up with our own lore, these are good things to know to enrich our experience and make things easier. I mean, people who can paint their own armies, they're at a huge advantage in my opinion. I'm sure if I dedicated years of my life to painting, I might have an iota of the skill that TF or Sumatai or Thumbs has. Because they've dedicated their life to this thing. It's, it's not my strength. Right now, sitting here, talking to y'all about old books, this is my strength. 
and I have perfected my craft or am working on perfecting my craft. You never actually reach perfect. That's not a place that we never be. It's a, it's a goal, but we'll never get there. And that's kind of the point. So what's being demonstrated here, I think, is we, we want to expose ourselves to as much as possible. And I have, I've, I've done a lot of different things in my life and I felt the things that really stuck and I've, I've applied myself to them. When it comes to music, when it comes to research and dissemination of information, these are my strengths. But you have to ask yourself, what are your strengths? What are the things that you've done within wargaming that have really resonated with you? And how can you apply yourself more to them? I think that's kind of a good message to take from this. So Ref finishes the boat. And instead of taking it, as he had originally planned, Guest says, you get to keep the boat. You did amazing with it. I will, I will fork out the money for those supplies because my goodness, this is an amazing boat. A little bit later on, while Guest is out of town, Geller, now you remember him from, from when we were talking about before, he was the Kyle figure, you know, comes from money, very boisterous, very like, hey, you're going to do what I want to do. Ha <laughs> ha. And so he challenges Ref to come along and play some sports with him and the rest of the guys. Or at the very least, when Ref refuses, to wrestle him. And Ref's like, I don't want to. I, I got things to do. This isn't really my bag. And, and Gellier gets really twisted about it because he's like, I want to fight. I want to do games. You don't want to do it. You're going to do it. And so, so they lock into a struggle. And, and eventually, again, Ref's big. And he throws Geller to the ground. He gets all scuffed up and everything. Geller gets even more mad and strikes him with his spear shaft. I mean, Ref doesn't really care. Again, he's big. It was kind of a, a mess strike, so it just kind of bounces off his shoulder blades. And then Geller and his boys ride away. And he tells everybody how he bested Ref in a fight, going off about, yeah, I gave him two good whacks, and he went down, and ha-ha, I'm, I'm the best in the world, building himself up. But Ref doesn't care. People talk to him about it. He doesn't deny or confirm it. He's like, meh, I don't care. Because Ref notices here, he didn't really apply himself to this situation. He didn't want to fight there was no immediate threat to his life, and so he didn't. And now the outcome, and, and, and what Gellier has done is setting himself up for failure. Because at some point, there's going to be a real fight with somebody that he's not going to be able to just talk his way out of. And Ref is also setting himself up well where he's not boasting. He's not letting people know the true extent of his abilities. Much like in the beginning, when he's called a coal biter and he's not necessarily applying himself as much, I think some of that is disguising his true abilities so that they're even more effective. We don't want to show people what we're truly capable of. Not until we truly have to. When it comes to fighting, I keep most things around you know, 70 or 80%. I don't put my 100% into most things, not unless it's really important. And that's mostly because I don't want people to learn how to defend against my 100%. And Ref's in a similar situation here. He, he's not like Thorbjorn. He doesn't want to go around just killing willy-nilly. And so Guest or, or Gellier running his mouth is not a good reason to just kill somebody. And Ref recognizes this. And again, he doesn't want to display his full talents here, I don't think. So that's my analysis of Ref the Sly Part 1, which is kind of the Thing 1 through Thing 5. I'm, I'm going to actually learn what those are called by the, by the next podcast. And as you can see, again, Ref has within him the makings of greatness. He's got all these things working for him to be your iconic hero. And he's only learning to apply himself at this point. And it's, I'm excited to see where this goes. I, I mean, I've already read it, so I, I know where it goes. But I'm excited to share with y'all where it goes. But now, I want to go into our interview 
where we're going to talk to the much talked about and much awaited turkey feathers. discuss these uh, first couple of uh, sections of Ref the Sly with me is the long-mentioned TF. I know that we've talked about him quite a bit on this show, and I am excited to finally have him here in person to talk to y'all. So thank you, TF, for, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, you know, obviously we've talked about you a bit on the show, but we haven't quite listed your entire pedigree. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your wargaming experience? Sure. Uh, I started uh, Bellegarth in 2009 in the summer. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been fighting, what is that, 12 or 13 years now? Yeah, so you start losing count after yeah. 10. <laughs> um, and in that time, I have been uh, part of a, or the leadership of a unit called the DGMA with mm-hmm. yourself. And sure. Thumbs, who's also been on the show. Mm-hmm. I am now in the EBF, the Elite Blood Falcons. I am. I started playing Warhammer three years ago, I think. That sounds about right. Yeah. And I've been all Blood Angels the whole time. For sure. And um, uh, and again, I think we've mentioned on the show before that Belagarth loosely took. Uh, the triad from some of the uh, Warhammer factions for the Space Marines. Dark Angels, you know, the unit I'm a part of, very obvious. We didn't change it at all. But the EBF is very Blood Angels. So Yes, absolutely. We, we definitely are. So, yeah, that's uh, that's very appropriate for you, sir. Yes. Well, uh, again, you've, you've got quite a bit of experience in yeah. different oh, levels. Oh, recently, oh. I've been getting into the Star Wars X-Wing uh, tabletop. That's right. War game, so... And that's that's still as as tactically challenging, but a lot easier than Warhammer. It is yet. simpler to play, but yeah, it definitely has the same uh, decent tactics that make it uh, a very unique and interesting experience. For sure, and plus, I, I, you know, Star Wars. Yeah, no, in the game I witnessed, I, it was done in about the time it would have taken two and a half turns of a regular Warhammer match. So. Uh, yes. Well, it's also like a kill team sized board with a like a kill team sized force in most cases. Yes. Which yeah. So it's it's a fun game. Uh, yeah, I I look forward to playing it a bit more with you myself. But as it comes down to the fighting aspect, one of the things we see here from Ref the Sly is that he is underestimated quite a bit. Like he walks into his neighbor's property armed. And nobody does anything about it because he's so unassuming. I've noticed people kind of do the same thing. Now, again, if they know who you are, absolutely not. They pay attention to you. But for first-time meters, I feel like they kind of give you the same treatment. But like Ref the Sly, I feel like it benefits you. It, it definitely does at times, for sure. Yeah, like if someone is coming at you not thinking you are going to be much of a challenge. They're not going to generally fight you as hard. And I'd use a lot of that to my advantage all the time on the field. I also set myself up and have my guard in ways that are not obvious 
Uh, we've talked to Toto before in this show too, and, and we went over a lot. He does a lot of the same thing you do. You're not sitting there super agitated, like gung-ho, ready to go, if people aren't immediately around you. And that disarms people. And it, Yeah, I mean, it stems from just being, a, it, it's a waste of effort to be like on guard all the time if there's not someone close enough and mm -hmm. like you're watching for archers and whatnot, any projectiles. Right. It's, you, you don't need to have your guard up and hard on guard all the time. And that makes you look like less of a threat. Sure. There have been times on our local field here where even people who have been fighting for years don't even register me because I'm just standing there nonchalantly and they walk right by me. I'm like, I'm on, not on your team. I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> no, and like you say, it, it works marvelously. And I feel like both you and Toto, it comes naturally to you because you're both kind of easygoing dudes. You're not super agitated. You're not super in, involved in the drama, for instance, but you're also like on the field, like you said, that relaxed stance, that ability to just sort of be a part of the scenery until you're not. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that taking it easy also uh, uh, t goes on to off the field too. Like you, you're one of those people that I rarely see stressed at an event. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you manage it to keep your cool, bro? Some of it's just... Any drama I do experience, I just try and stay as much out of it as I can. And then also just, if it's not about me, someone I care about, or my unit, or whatever, whatever something like that, like, mm -hmm. I try to just avoid as much drama as possible, because if I'm not there for it, I can't be stressed about it, and... I'm there to have fun and hit people with sticks, so I'm gonna go try and have fun and hit people with sticks, not get myself caught up in in drama. So, like when most people, you know, we we take the kind of group water breaks. Mm -hmm. They they at least in Stygia tend to kind of take a, a life of their own and eat up some time, and people sit there and chit chat and hang out, which is great. It's always good to hang out with friends and whatnot. But, Get a little rester. Yeah. But they also, you know, they gossip and... Complain. Complain a lot. And I typically will take my moment to get my water, maybe chat with a few people here and there for a second, and then I will go wander back out onto the field and just wait for people to start coming back and fight. And then I'm I'm not there to witness people doing their complaining and all of that, and so I don't get caught up in all of the drama. Well, it makes sense, and uh, it sounds like you have your priorities straight, which is why you have a good time. Yes. Which is nice. So, another one of the things that I thought were, was perfect for you when I was reading over this section of Ref the Sly was that Ref is an incredibly crafty person. I mean, again, uh, beyond just being underestimated by everybody, in these first five sections, he demonstrates a remarkable genius for crafting things you know especially woodcraft in this section but the guy is just skilled you yourself are quite skilled at crafting things and i imagine that that too benefits you massively within again you can't make your own warhammer models but you paint your own warhammer models and i feel like your kit is yours too right yeah for sword fighting like i i make pretty much everything that i wear the only things that 
I haven't made are gifts at this point. Um, I don't typically buy garb because the stuff that I would want is generally going to cost me an arm and a leg. Sure. Whereas if I go out and buy the materials, it may not be the, the super fancy, spiffy, clean edges, but I play a monster-y type character, so right. it's okay if it looks a little messy, mm -hmm. and then I get to make exactly what I want for half, sometimes less the price than it would be to get exactly what I wanted from uh, someone custom made. Well, and the amount of like remeasuring that would take place there, because again, we're we're long fellas. Indeed. And so making sure that our limbs can move freely, but also not get tangled up in the garb is kind of a challenge yes. for us. And then also on the weapons and shield side of it, like, again, it's kind of the same thing for me. Like, I know what I want in a weapon and a shield. And like, I'll, I'll or if I get even a new idea, like I have a, a specific idea of what I'm wanting and going to Forged Foam uh, and any of the bigger retailers, like generally is going to cost me way more to get exactly what I want than it would be for me to just make it myself and then I can do whatever amount of customization I want to it. And it's, so it just is very easy for me to get, like I said, exactly what I want and pay fraction of it and then that leads to on the field like I'm comfortable in what I'm wearing because I've made it with fighting in mind mm -hmm. and it's just something that I think generally looks cool so I just am generally comfortable with that and then the swords I made them I, I know they're balanced really well I designed them that way so it's just a nice not necessarily huge advantage but like just a, a comfort advantage sure so when well, you've got the skill to pull it off too like if i was to try to go and make garb that was specified to to me and make weapons that were specified to me those weapons would fall apart within the first weapons check <laughs> and that garb would also probably do the same fair so there there is absolutely a skill difference here that you take full advantage of oh yeah i mean like i've always been a fan of just making stuff uh I've made my own coffee table and shelving and whatnot for my own home personal desk. Mm -hmm. And I made a board for playing X-Wing on. You've uh, made quite a few of my weapons, too. Yeah, and then even with the Warhammer, like, I really enjoy building and painting more than I enjoy playing a lot of the time. Hmm. Like, I enjoy playing the game because you get to use these cool things I've made and painted. And sure. But, like, taking a model that is normally just in this one pose and has these weapons, like, well, they can take more weapons than that. I'm going to put them in a nifty different pose and magnetize them. And it's, it's a fun, crafty experience. And I've always just been an artsy, crafty person. And just as an aside, uh, if you if you uh, listeners are on our Instagram page, those gorgeously painted knights that we that we posted up there, that was TF that did that. Um, and so yeah, we're we're very proud of his work as well, and we benefit from it massively. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you that if you ever need an apprentice, 
make sure that they're better at like everything than you are because then they make you look really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the way of it. Um, so yeah, that crafting obviously is a is a huge amount of uh, of boon. It helps you out not on the not just on the field, but also like you said, everywhere else with with furniture and all that sort of thing. So um, crafty types, it absolutely can apply, and and uh, it's definitely something to pursue. Now, one of the things that you and I share on the field is a, is an idea of mutual respect. And it's not quite as tenuous as like Stein and Thorbjorn's respect, which immediately fell apart after Stein passed. Like th there's a respect between the two of us that works really well. However, if I were to sit there and, and drop my sword on the ground in the middle of a fight between the two of us, would you spare me? Chances are very low. That's my apprentice right there, guys. That's it. That's it right there. That's the correct I answer. I would have to be extremely lazy or out of position most of the time to not sure. make a move on that. And that's smart. It's one of the things that our line teaches is that that sort of honor is kind of massively overrated uh, when it comes to the field. But in this particular section, it almost looks like Ref is demonstrating that because he goes in, Thorbjorn is literally caught with his pants down. Like he, he's, you know, he's in bed. And uh, not only does Ref like allow him to get all of his clothes on, but also allows him to gear up, and and that seems to me like a bad decision in terms of like the, the honor concept, allowing your your opponent to become that way. But it can also be analyzed in a different way. One of the things, public perception, like mm -hmm. if you if he had walked in there and just gacked him in his sleep, then. Everyone else just sees this dude walked in and stabbed a dude in his sleep because he was mad at him. And that's not a good look. No, nothing, people don't generally look fondly on that. Sure. But letting him get all geared up, sword and everything on his belt, makes it look like they were maybe just having a, a fully... Legal and upright sort of uh, disagreement that came into yeah. blows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, that's definitely a... A good way of looking at it like there's definitely the the political perspective to all of this but i you know i think another way to look at it too is to say that uh a ref was maybe was just spoiling for a good fight like perhaps for him it had nothing to do with necessarily honor but it was just like you know it's not much fun unless the dude at least is armed you yeah. may not have it out of the clasp yet not not so much the honor side but just like I want a little bit more of a challenge. If he has his sword there, there's a chance he can do something. And then it makes it... And he had the chance to do so. Yeah. He gave him the opportunity, and Thorbjorn used it instead to trash talk him. At which, which point... yeah, just a, a mistake. <laughs> and, and that's another thing that you definitely do on the field. Like, you are not a super chatty person. Like, you will yell things out, like if somebody's coming from behind, or if there's field commands that need to be said. Yeah. You'll definitely do that. But otherwise... You're not one for monologuing or even mocking necessarily your opponents. And if somebody starts to, I feel like ref, you're just sort of like, and shush. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I work a lot on keeping myself as stealthy as possible most of the time in fighting. Sure. Unless I'm trying to like hold one side of the line or whatever while my teammates go and do whatever objective. Sure. But that is generally not my my go-to. My go-to is generally to 
be as low key as I possible, especially like when being an archer. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not the archer that is out there making calls and like directing things. I am the the sneaky guy that pops up here and there and fires at weird angles and then disappears and goes over here and shoots over from here and so. No, and it, and it works out. And uh, again, kind of going back to that taking it easy thing, it's very rare that I see you on tilt on the field. I, I, I feel like you try to keep emotion largely out of it. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I don't feel like it is generally a good idea to fight from an emotional standpoint in a game where we're actually being mock aggressive, but it can be taken as serious aggression. And it can become serious aggression, so... Sure. Uh, there's there's and, absolutely that to it. Um, I also feel like it's a tactical advantage for you, too. It definitely helps keep a clearer head. So, Which, as we've discussed in, like, every single book we've covered, uh, <laughs> not getting tilted by your enemy is, is, is really what you're aiming for. Yeah, if you can maintain even just a measure of neutrality enough to be able to think, like, that, that, that can only benefit you. <laughs> sure. Sure. So, you know, a lot of our listeners, perhaps, especially the ones who are within the, the community of Belagarth, the EBF is kind of an enigma. It's, it's sort of a, a, a removed and lofty organization in a lot of cases. And it's, it's not necessary that it's designed to be that way, but it's a very tight... It's not not designed to well. be that way. <laughs> Either. <laughs> I suppose that's true. And so, obviously, without divulging any company secrets, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners that perhaps somebody from the outside doesn't understand about the EBF? Um, I mean, just like anyone who's competitive, like, when we're on the field, like, we mean business. And I realize that not everyone can separate that super easily from outside of fighting sure most of us try to be try to go out when once we're not on the field and just have a good time and enjoy people's company but at the same time some of us are getting older and want to just chill in our camp with our chosen friends and family sure. so it, it can create i guess some misunderstanding sometimes because mm -hmm. some people just want to go back after fighting is done and hang out. Sure. Other people want to go and hang out with everybody. Sure, like Hobbit and Achilles come to mind. Yeah, and like I personally enjoy floating around all over the place. I've got friends in almost every unit and unaffiliateds, whatever. They don't all camp next to EBF. Sure. So I like to go hang out with everyone. I, I definitely spend a salt more significant time in my camp sure but i mean we're all just people trying to enjoy the game too like yeah sure we're real competitive about it but most of us are pretty cool chill people too so that brings me to another uh another question that i had which is you had brought up before that on the field the ebf is super competitive and really in it to win it mm-hmm um, I don't feel like that's much different than any other sport, in my opinion. You know, like r rugby, they go hard. Yeah. You know, they, they, they are in the scrum. They are, you know, borderline hurting each other. Absolutely. But yeah. then after the match is over, they go and chill together because they understand that that intensity is just part of the game. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. And with this being a less organized sport, mm -hmm. like, 
I guess a lot of people don't expect that. Sure. But but that's definitely how we, most of us in the EBF, try to treat it. It's like if it's we're on the field, it is go time. We are going hard because we we want to win. Well, I mentioned a lot of our listeners of the, are of that same mindset too, which is yeah. why I, I kind of bring it up. The other idea that that uh, bring comes to mind there is that in most organized sports teams, you have like a captain and a co-captain, and then usually a manager above that. But there's definitely a ranking system that is rigid. My understanding of the EBF is that there's a, a lack of a solid ranking structure that, by and large, there's a lot of equality kind of going on there. I mean, yeah, there, there's, there is a, a ranking structure and we have our unit leaders, mm -hmm. but once you're an EBF, you're, we're, we're all family. No, that, and that makes sense. Um, I don't know, just usually when I'm in, when you're in your camp, there's not the same deference like, uh, the, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you who your unit leaders are. When I go into Urukai camp, I definitely know who they are because they're the ones who are kicking butt and making sure that things well, yeah, are done. And our, our unit leaders, like, they each have their specific role that mm -hmm. they cover. Sure. So, like, if they're not dealing with those kind of things, they're just another brother for the most part. Like, sure. Sure, they are also a leader, but they're also just one of us, so... So it's like a, a specified role that they fill, but not not like a manager in general. Yeah, more more along those lines. Okay, and and again, that it it, it helps that the EBF are kind of, of of one mind in a lot of ways. The recruiting process is is very slow and very selective, and and I feel like much like the Dark Angels, it's a matter of finding people that vibe with the uh, with the team. Yeah, uh, vibe with the unit. Absolutely. And I mean, some people criticize that. And I know a lot of people criticize that. I am not personally a criticizer of it. Obviously, I'm, <laughs> I'm a dark angel. But I mean, there's, there's, other, there's the other units for different things. Like I know that there's other units that are more about, you know, role play or more about just like hanging out together. And that's cool. If people are in those units and that's their focus within, within like Belagarth or physical fighting, then more power to them. But yeah. for folks that are, you know... A little bit more competitive with it, and and kind of want to be a, and again, not just the triad. I, I don't want to. I don't want to try to make it sound like it's only the triad that does this, and only the triad that goes for that level of competitiveness. Because there are other units, absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, we are both part of the triad. It's right. easy, an easy reference for us to make. Very true. <laughs> That's very true. So yeah, this is not. It's not something that's unique just to us. There's there's a lot of different folks that practice this, and. But but to say that, like, there's also a lot of different roles that can be filled. Like, I know for the Dark Angels, for instance, you don't necessarily have to be the best fighter in the world as long as you bring something to the team. Like, you may not be the best in melee clutch, but if you're an amazing archer, then you're definitely bringing something to the team. Or, uh, heck, an amazing cook. Like, we, we I know that, like, our, our cooks are also good fighters, but I know that Dark Angel Camp typically has some of the best food <laughs> on site and that is totally thanks to to the, the folks who give their time uh to that sort of thing but yeah so the the selectiveness for it I, I do you feel like it's it's something that works do you think it's something that that is good for the unit i would say yeah because we're we're trying to find people who are a good fit for us mm -hmm. and that we are a good fit for them sure both like sure. that's that's very important to us because we're, we're a for life unit. 
you're also a solid organization on the field. Like there's not a whole lot of random motions. When the EBF move, the EBF move together. It's, it's not so much each person moving with their own mind, but like a Hydra moving across the field, or at least that's the appearance that it gives. That, that is definitely one of our, our things we strive for. And that, that kind of harmony of spirit certainly yeah. contributes in that way, I think. And again, we've been a part of other groups that were far more open and, and, oh, yeah. and far different ideals. And even when it comes to realms, like when it comes to local groups, there's almost a, a complete opposite uh, feel there. We'll take anybody. Right. You know, if you're coming in and you don't have like a, uh, an assault record or something like that, <laughs> then yeah, we'll take you. Uh, it doesn't matter how in shape, out of shape, uh, physically inclined you were. I didn't do any sports before I did this. I mean, I dabbled with some track here and there, yeah. but I didn't do anything organized wise until I found Bell. And then of course it was a steep learning curve because all the team sports stuff that I had missed out on in my younger years, it suddenly became very important. Um, yeah. but you, I mean, you did sports before though. Like you were kind of uh, little bits, but they weren't super team sports. They mm -hmm. were, they were much more, I mean, competitive, sure. like one-on-one -on -one style. Like I was on the swim team and then I, I did little bits of track in high right. school. So, so as the, like the team still scores as a whole, but you individually are doing your event. Yeah, I guess that's true. No, that's, that's valid. So again, you're still kind of thinking as a team, kind of, but again, like... It's it's a more of a background thought. Sure. It's not the forefront. Because it doesn't contribute to that victory no. in particular. Your, your individual performance is what has a potential to help the team, but it is all focused on the individual performances. The, the team aspect of it is a sort of secondary. Sure. And, and I mean, to kind of bring that back around, when I watch the EBF fight, there's like, you are often given a float position where yeah. you can kind of like move toward the, uh, the sides if you're wanting to, there's a lot more independence there. Yeah. And, and I don't know, I would think that that experience that you had there, that kind of focus you were able to maintain thinking about the team as kind of like a background thing, making sure that they're on, on your mind, but you've got your event. It's definitely, especially useful, uh, as an archer especially uh, an archer of my style that is not the loud and like, hey, here I am, I'm a big scary target. Right. I'm, I'm trying to find the best spot to take out the people that are going to be the most dangerous or that are just open, not paying attention, whatever. Well, that's, that's also like typical sniper. That's like sniper 101, which is, you know, find yourself a nice little vantage point, shoot and scoot. Yep. And then do it again. Don't, don't sit in the same spot. Cause then they can just, well, the arrow came from over there. No, that, I mean, yeah. And then of course everybody focuses on the over there and eventually the archer gets taken out. Whereas yeah. for you, there's this mysterious shooter who's like, yeah. I don't, I don't know where they Cause are. Cause I'll run around crouching behind my line. And pop up, shoot, crouch back down, scurry over here. Sure. So. No, and, and it, it works well for you. And I think there was a lot of it beforehand that fed into it. And then, of course, you have gone above and beyond. Because, uh, again, we used to work out together. And I saw your motivation. I know that you continued uh, kind of working at that level. You continue to get better at crafting. You continue to uh, perfect your Warhammer game. So, I guess... The message here that I would like to, to emphasize is that excellence is not a, a goal, but mm -hmm. 
but a pursuit. It's it's like daily excellence is a daily practice. Like you don't rest on your laurels. No, it, that doesn't do you any good. Then you get stagnant. For and, true. Yeah. Well, TF, I have loved finally having you on the show again. We talk about you enough on here <laughs> that it was nice to finally give the listeners an idea of who you are. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you on. for having me. It was a it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I look forward to bragging about more of your exploits in <laughs> times to come. But uh, for now, dear listeners, we are going to transition into our battle section. episodes while we're studying the saga of Ref the Sly, we're going to be taking a closer look at the age of the Stirlungs, at least for these first two episodes. You'll recall the age of the Stirlungs from our last episode, being kind of the tail end of this bloody Nordic or uh, Icelandic struggle that eventually results in kind of becoming vassals of Norway. But the way this happens, the actual age of the Stirlungs is really kind of interesting. So we're going to take a closer look at this, like I said, and, and just sort of see what there is to see in terms of, you know, not just tactical value, but also just the, the because I never studied, this was new for me. I had never studied the military history of Iceland. It never really occurred to me to do so. And so I really enjoyed this. And, and I imagine that the majority of you who are listening haven't really studied any of this information either. So this is going to be a cool adventure for both of us. But first... Let's start with some linguistic butchery as I talk about some of the players during this period of Iceland's history. You have major families. At this point, again, the, the, the powers become consolidated into these major families that control larger swaths of land. This check and balance system of having each area, each of these smaller areas, be in competition with one another but are relatively balanced, that's over. So now we have a Game of Thrones-style situation going on where these major families are vying for positions of power and ultimately for control of Iceland. So we have the, ha Ooh. the Hauk Dailir of Arnesthing, the Ottaverjar of Rangarvelir, the Asbjörn Inger of Skagafjord, the Vatsfjordinger of Eastfjord and the Svelin Fellingar of the Eastern region. Man, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> and then, of course, the Stirlungs of Hamimur in Dalir, who are kind of the focus of this. Hakon the Old, the King of Norway, also plays into this as well. Just a, a, a temporary aside of curiosity. You, I don't think that he probably started with this, but wouldn't it be kind of insulting to be called Hakon the Old? I know at the time it was probably a marker of honor being like, well, he, he actually got to be old. But was he called that when he first took over? You know, you got this young guy being like, hey, I'm Hakon the Old. Or the Youngers. That's another one where you've got like um, so-and-so the young. What about when they get old? Like Billy the Kid. I don't know. That's not important. What's important is that the age of Stirlungs was a 42 to 44 year period, depending on how you uh, measure it of violent internal strife, civil war, within Iceland. Much like earlier in their history, there are 39, that is, that's a fixed number, Godi, 
But that word has slowly transformed. Godi used to be the priests. And while they were still the, the kind of political figures in the area, they were directly associated with the priesthood or, or the loose priesthood that we would kind of think of there. But as Christianity gradually replaced the old religions, the Godi, the word Godi kind of shifted to a local chieftain. So again, there's 39 of these guys and they protected the farmers of their region and provided vengeance if the rights were violated, if somebody came over and took cattle or killed someone or expanded onto their land, they were expected to go out and fight for their people. However, in return, they got support at the all thing. So when the votes were cast and, and policies were kind of being made at this legal press, uh, gathering, the people were expected to support their Godi, their, their larger local chieftain. It was not a permanent or an inherited position. A lot of the, the, the people that we've dealt with got their position, like Frederick, he got to his position because he's, his daddy was rich. You know, he, he may have proven to be an able commander and an able statesman, but the reason he got the position was because of heredity. A lot of things uh, even still work this way, where it kind of passes to the eldest child or the eldest male or, or whatever the case may be, whether it's in, when it regard money or political positions, this is not so uncommon, even in the Western world today. So this was kind of different. The fact that if they became unpopular with their, with their uh, constituency, for lack of a better word, that they could be kind of shuffled out to, some, to make room for somebody who represents better or has more power in the eyes of that particular family. So let's go to 1220, when Snorri Sturlston who was the Stirling chieftain, and he was also one of the few known saga writers as well. As we talked about before, we don't know who wrote most of the sagas, but we do know that Snorri wrote several of them. So he was kind of an important guy. And he becomes a vassal of Norway in order to kind of promote his own power and get to a better position. And so he starts amassing power and amassing support until he becomes the most powerful chieftain in Iceland, with the support of King Hakon, he becomes one of the most powerful figures in Iceland, and his family becomes the most powerful. And in return, of course, he was expecting Snorri to sway Icelandic politics his direction, to, to make it so that other families, other of these little, these little fiefdoms, wanted to join up with Norway. But uh, he doesn't whether it's from lack of caring or because he simply was using this situation to his benefit and had no intention of helping the king of Norway in the first place, we don't know that. But we do know that he decides to, to not follow through on his end of the bargain. But he stays in power for a long time and enjoys the preeminence that comes with the, the power that he has amassed. In 1235, however, Snorri's nephew, Sturla Sigvatsen, he becomes the leader of the family. He is regarded with more power, people like him better, and he is more aggressive. He speaks more about expanding their influence through aggressive policies, and so he gains favor. And he sends his uncle away, back to Norway, to kind of be, uh, have an eye kept on him. He's far less dangerous there in terms of political maneuvering than he would be staying in the country. And he begins warring with those who refuse to bend a knee to Norway. It offers them a choice. You become fellow vassals like we are, or we're coming after you. 
And so he, he begins to aggress on his neighbors, begins to kind of expand those borders. Until in 1238, some of his enemies come together and disrupt this power structure that's been going on. And this was on August 21st. And this was actually the largest armed conflict in Icelandic history. Now remember that Iceland currently has a population of 341,000. So that's not much. So, so in terms of proportion, especially at the time, this is still a lot of people, just less in terms of numbers than we normally talk about. And this battle was the Battle of Orligistatir. Gosh, I'm bad at this. And this is in Northern Iceland. So on the one side, you have Sturla, who, who has just become the leader of the, of the clan of the Sturlungs only three years before. And then there's his father, Sigvatur. Now on their side, they only have a thousand people. On the other side of the field, you have Gissir Thorvaldsson, who is the representative from the Haukdir. And then you have Kolbein the Young of the Aspernines. This is one of the guys I was talking about. What if he gets older? Is he still going to be Kolbein the Young? These are questions I need to know the answer to. And they have between 1,200 and 1,700 people. So not quite double, but certainly more by a factor of about 50% than the Sturlungs have. The Sturlungs are very, very confident, though, and they, they still come to battle here. Part of the reason that the numbers for the Sturlungs were so much smaller than for the, the enemies that were arrayed against them was because they were more spread out. They had a higher population. They had more people under their disposal, more soldiers at their disposal, but it was harder to bring them together. And this kind of uh, reminds me of in physical wargaming when we're dealing with units. It is awesome to be able to spread out, to get your influence into a lot of different places. That being said, it can be difficult to bring people together if this occurs. Most of the Dark Angels, for instance, the unit that I'm a part of, live in the East, kind of centered around the Michigan and Tennessee corridor. So when they want to get together, it's, it's perfectly fine. But for those of us who live out here in Colorado, Montana, California, it can be harder to get over there. And so it's harder to get all of us on the field at one time. And that reduces our effectiveness there somewhat. It was kind of the same here. We don't try to aggress on our neighbors quite the same, but, uh, but yeah, they weren't able to bring as many people together. And this was a short battle. In fact, it was really f hard to find like exactly what happened here. I assume that they came together, there was fighting, and then it, it ended fairly quickly. There were only 50 people killed. The largest armed conflict in Iceland's history, and only 50 people died. But this included the Sturlung commanders, both Sturla and Sigvatur, they were killed. And five others were executed afterwards. And at this point, the power of the Sturlungs drops. They are no longer the most powerful people in Iceland. Sturla spent their strength, politically and militarily, in this battle. It's interesting to see the, the, the dichotomy there, the, the comparison between Snorri and Sturla. Because while Snorri may not have aggressed the same way that Norway would have wanted to, kind of forced his neighbors to do anything, he was the one that amassed all this power. And not through war, not through aggression, but through politics. And Sturla, even though people thought that he was the better uh, representative because he was going to be more aggressive, he was going to get them more things, he was going to make the Sturlungs great. He ends up spending 
all of their power in a conflict that was caused by him just aggressing on his neighbors rather recklessly. So who is, who is a more effective leader? I suppose it depends on who you ask. I think the lesson here is that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, is kind of the idea. Now, would uh, Iceland have come under the vassalage of Norway had these, uh, these violent escalations occurred? Probably not, because it was, it was relatively stable before, and it's the, it's the civil war that's kicked off by these sorts of conflicts that tears the country apart. And this just keeps going. There, there are several more battles that take place, and of course there's an exchange of power back and forth. We may know the end of this story, but it's kind of interesting to get there. So I'm looking forward to talking about the rest of this Age of Stirlung conflict in our next, next episode. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>